Hello. An uh, audio version of my most recent Substack essay called Satan on Earth, His Forms, Tasks, and Temptations, which was inspired by my summer reading of Master Margarita and, of course, all the religious thrillers I've loved before. I'll obviously add some color commentary. You know how it goes. But mostly we'll be reading as a script. Preface. When I was a junior in high school, that your senior val- valedictorian started her speech talking about the difficulties of starting a speech. My English teacher, shouts out Miss R, encouraged us never to start a speech by talking about how hard writing a speech is. I like to tell the story because writing is indeed quite hard and getting started is just the worst. It's been eight years or so since I stopped blogging. A handful or less of you readers will remember the good old days. So the cobwebs are thick and sturdy, but here we are. This essay started as one thing, as ideas tend to do, as it's uh, evolved. <laughs> Ooh, haven't recorded in a while. Evolved as I started getting down to it. I've gone from wouldn't it be nice to too expansive to ever finish to good lord, will anyone give a shit, to do less now, write more later. Reading Master and Margarita this summer moved me in a way that was delightful and surprising. More in the conclusion. I got to thinking about Professor Roland, the whispers, okay, shouts of Faust throughout, and my favorite depictions of angels and God, but in this case, the devil. There are many versions that come to mind, but the one that I hold most dear is Lucifer in the 2005 film Constantine, who says, I do miss the old names. Between Lou, as John calls him, Professor Roland, Mephistopheles, and the death... <laughs> And the devil from the Christian Bible, imagine the TikTok song, uh, the TikTok sound. We have a pretty good scaffold for a basic describe, compare, and contrast. You're welcome to subscribe. Agenda as follows. Satan's descriptions, his tasks and temptations, and Satan's heart. See also above regarding do less now, write more later. Left on the cutting room floor, John Constantine's comic book self and his combat with Satan. Loose for the show, since I've never watched it other than TikTok clips. Preacher's TV Satan and depictions of hell, and Preacher's comic book depictions of Satan, hell, and the saint of killers. Dante's seven-tiered version, Paradise Lost. That's at least all that came to mind and was shelved. Plenty of ammo for part two, maybe after we take a look at the heavenly hosts. Okay, enough stalling. Quote, Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. Introduction. I had never heard of Master Margarita until the August-September 2022 banned books issue of Reason magazine. Jesse Walker wrote a short and sweet piece on the novel and the author's complicated history and connection to acne-prone short king Joseph Stalin. I reread... Oof. Woof. I reread it just now, and honestly, I can't remember what hooked me exactly, likely gun-toting cat... But I do remember adding it to my Goodreads list and buying a copy shortly after. A copy that would indeed sit on the shelf for about a year. We'd just finished reading Stalin's War. I was about to take an 18-day work trip, and I wanted to stay in the world of Stalin's Russia and thought, now seems like a good time. There There are summaries galore online, in addition to my copy's excellent forward and introduction, but here's my synopsis. Two men converse. They are joined by the devil. He tells the story of a headache-ridden Pontius Pilate, yeah, that one, and his first meeting with Ha Nasri, who is eventually crucified. Yes, it's who you're thinking. At this point, if I recall correctly, my first tear was shed. Can you blame me? 
pilot as tragic leading man, swooning in pain, overlooking Yerushalayim, a.k.a. Jerusalem. The devil then predicts the death of one of the two men he's talking to, who does indeed die, and from there we are off to the races. The who's who of Moscow toddle about and are punished by the devil, called Professor Woland and his entourage. A psych patient tells the tale of his novel. The story of Pilot continues this way, and his beautiful lost love, who we find out, is Margarita. There is indeed a cat with a gun, a seance, later turned naked attendees of said seance, three more naked women slash witches, a scary ball for the dead, a bit of flying horses, and eventually peace and forgiveness. I'm going to save the emotional stuff for the end, but for now, part one, Satan's Forms. Woland is described on page six in the following manner. First of all, the man described did not limp on any leg and was neither short nor enormous, but simply tall. As for his teeth, he had platinum crowns on the left side and gold on the right. He was wearing an expensive gray suit and imported shoes of a matching color. His gray beret was cocked rakishly over one ear. Under his arm, he carried a stick with a black knob shaped like a poodle's head. He looked to be a little over 40, mouth somehow twisted, clean-shaven, dark-haired, right eye black, left, for some reason, green, dark eyebrows, but one higher than the other. In short, a foreigner. His clothing. He wears a black half-mask during the seance. Entourage, apartment furniture, all dis- all define him, along with his posture and ease. Before Satan's ball, Margarita returns to Wolin's apartment, first seeing a wide oak bed with dirty, rumpled sheets. And as she is taking in the room, she sees Woland, who she is prodded to call Messiah. His eyes were fixed on Margarita's face, the right one with a golden spark at its bottom, drilling anyone to the bottom of his soul, and the left one empty and black, like a narrow eye of a needle, like the entrance to the bottomless well of all darkness and shadow. The skin of Woolen's face was as if burned for all eternity by the sun. He's wearing a patch-worn nightshirt while the naked witch Hella rubs ointment on his knee. The translation notes inform the reader that one of Bolka, Bol, oops, first time reading that out loud, Bolkagov's sources for Master Margarita, M. N. Orlov's history of man's relation with the devil. Apparently, Satan always wears a dirty shirt when performing rituals. Who knew? Faust, which I started reading for the first time while drunk on an airplane, also described the devil by clothing, style, and panache. Despite starting it for the first time, I'd absorbed the plot of Faust through osmosis, including but not limited to the Wishbone version, the 22nd Mirror scene in V for Vendetta, and probably some other stuff, but mostly Wishbone. When Mephistopheles enters Faust's study, or at least is granted entry, he states, I am dressed like young nobility in a scarlet gold trim coat and in a little silk-lined coat, a cockerel feather in my hat with a long pointed sword, and I advise you at that to do as I do, in a word, so that footloose, fancy free, you can experience life with me. On page 87, some frat boys, and I did indeed type, ahem, young students of the time see Mephistopheles and Faust in a pub, and one mentions his limp. Bulk of Kov's. <laughs> oh, it's like reading the Bible. Bulk, Bulga, Bulgakov's description quoted above comes after a list of post Wolin's departure descriptions and does specifically clarify no limp, but Wolin's aching knee, pampered by the beautiful naked witches around him, comes to mind. 
After their tavern adventure, the lads head to the witch's kitchen and encounter some apes, some beasts, and the witch herself, who doesn't even recognize Mephistopheles for who he is initially until he starts in. Do you know me? Skeleton, scarecrow, do you know your lord and master? What stops me from striking you so, crushing you and your ape creatures? Have you no response for a scarlet coat? Don't you understand a cockerel's feather? Have I hidden my face, you old she-goat? Have I to name myself as ever? The witch answers, Oh, sir, forgive the rude welcome. I don't see a single cloven foot, and your two ravens are where? If performing, I would indeed deliver this line sarcastically with a curtsy and a thumbed nose. This dandy, the devil? Uh, but actually, a real question. Are we supposed to know what a cockerel feather means? Is this something I should be on the lookout for my... Uh, is this something I should be on the lookout for in my everyday life? He answers, and civilization makes men level. It even sticks to the devil that northern demon is no more. Who sees horns now, or tail, or claw? I deliver this line with gestures toward Faust, a hand over the place where my heart should be, knowing I am a demon among men and must be a man to pass. An easy sentiment to project. The witch responds, send and reason flee my brain. I see young Satan here again, and Mephistopheles responds woman i forbid that name that is my favorite part he is a new uh not man but a new version of himself with a new name a new servant and master a new contest with god mephistopheles has no idea someday he'll miss the old names satan's which i use intentionally and as rudely as possible to messiah appearance is not described in the bible per se revelation tells the story of the war in heaven and of satan's fall well his hurl or cast depending on the translations he is given names like great red dragon the old serpent who is called the devil and satan who seduces the whole world it's revelations 12 3 and 9 i'll admit I've made my way through the Bible one and three quarters time, and I was hoping, based on the Constantine movie, that there were old names. Satan and the Devil, sure, old school classic, can't forget old Lucifer. I am partial to Morning Star, mostly because it sounds cool. Isaiah fourteen twelve gives us, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, who didst rise in the morning? Later translations are a wee different, and since Jesus is called the Morning Star in Revelations, you can find oodles of articles explaining how and why they are different. This lack of description leaves quite a bit of creative license. Per above, my absolute favorite version appears in Constantine, the 2005 religious thriller starring Keanu Reeves and Rachel Weisz. Peter Stormare plays an absolutely disgusting, gorgeous, terrifying Lucifer in a five-minute scene at the end of the film. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes so you can see all my amazing links and embedded videos and whatnot. Lucifer's tar-covered feet and white suit are what the audience sees first as he descends, a visual surprise as we expect him to emerge up from the pit. Once, once an angel, always an angel. He moves forward, leaving footprints on the tiles, reminiscent of the footprints in the sand, perhaps, as he walks confidently to John, dying by suicide for the second time. They're on a first-name basis, Lou and John. Their relationship has been set up throughout the film, and now the moment of truth has arrived. Is John really the one soul Lucifer would come up himself to collect? Indeed he is, before Lou realizes the trick. Indeed, he is even playful with a childlike delight at finally getting his way with Constantine, for whom he has prepared, quote, a theme park full of rare delights. 
His temple veins match his tattoos stretching out underneath an ill-fitting white suit and jacket. He's relatable, nearly human, a busy father who needs a vacation you almost forget. Since he's one of two men having a relaxed conversation until suddenly his mood shifts and he changes, snapping at John like an animal licking his teeth in anticipation. Once a dragon, always a dragon. Quote, Bartender, you see the wines drinking me came from the vine that strung Judas from the devil's tree, its roots deep, deep in the ground. Part two, Satan's tasks and temptations. Earlier in the film, Constantine invites Angela into his world, a world she already knows, in a short scene explaining his suicide, his mission for heaven, the so-called balance, the world behind the world. Lucifer and God's missionaries, the influence peddlers, Lucifer states, this world is mine in time after he tried and failed to retrieve Constantine, but ever confident he knows his time will come. Revelation seems both a history and a prophecy. In the Bible in hell, according to Constantine, Revelation ends differently, though to him, quote, a fire's the fire. Before Revelations, readers encounter Satan's meeting with Jesus in the desert, documented in Matthew chapter 4. He's explicit in his temptation. I hear Satan's tone as blasé, calm, and with a shrug. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. It's Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. The devil brings Christ from the desert to the temple and says, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written that he hath given his angels charge over thee, and in their hands shall they bear thee up. It's 4, 6. Finally, he takes Christ to the top of a mountain to behold the world. All these I will give thee, if falling down thou wilt adore me. It's 4.9. Christ denies all these invitations, and Satan simply leaves, perhaps back down to his home or perhaps up to heaven for a debrief. We see Satan in action in two additional Gospels, Luke 22.3. And Satan entered into Judas, who was surnamed Iscariot, one of the twelve. And John thirteen twenty seven, and after that morsel, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. All done to fulfill the scriptures, I suppose. I wonder what God felt as he watched on, knowing what was coming for his son and what he said to Satan to get him to agree. I'm sure it didn't take much. But if Satan hadn't, would Judas, would Judas still have become the betrayer? Satan is clearly open to the challenge of taking the word for his, watching on as Christ and his followers change the shape of even modern society. Satan and God, two characters, celestial beings, former comrades in arms, meet at the start of Faust and at the start of Job to have the same conversation, perhaps similar to the one had about Christ's temptation and passion. In Job chapters 1 and 2, the Son of God are standing together and Satan is there too. He tells God he's traveled the entire earth, and after God mentions Job, a faithful servant, Satan asks, Doth Job fear God in vain? Chapter 1, verse 9. Since he is a man of wealth and family and sustenance, but stretch forth thy hand a little, and touch all that he hath, and see if he blesseth thee not to thy face. One eleven. God agrees that Satan may influence Job's things, but not the man, which he does, and Job passes the test. Satan returns to God and his sons and suggests, But put forth thy hand and touch his bone and flesh, and then thou shalt gee, uh, which I think is a misspelling in my independently produced Bible, uh, that he will bless thee to thy face. See, oh, it must be see. Then thou shalt see that he will bless 
thee to thy face. That's chapter 2, verse 4. God allows it, asking Satan to spare Job's life, and Satan sets forth. Mephistopheles is described first among the archangels, exactly as in Job. I love this scene. I imagine him wandering in, former resident of heaven, still welcome, sort of, to talk directly to God. He's got sunglasses on, obviously, in this imagery, because it's too bright, and a hot coffee, because he's too cold. And he says, hey, boys, as he strolls past Raphael, Michael, and Gabriel, knowing exactly the effect he has on them. They speak in poetry, proclaiming Satan's presence, but there is no battle, no war. He used to be their brother, and here he is again. Mephistopheles says the little god of earth sticks to the old way and is strange as on that very first day. He might appreciate life a little more. He might if you hadn't let him, if you hadn't lent him a gleam of heavenly light. He calls it reason, but only uses it to be more a beast than any beast as yet. God answers, have you nothing else to name? Do you always come here to complain? Brief side note, hilarious bit. Uh, though I do like calling mankind the little god of earth. God asks, do you know Faust? The doctor? My servant first. Though he's still confused at how to serve me, I'll soon lead him to a clearer dawning. And here's the fun part. What do you wager? I might win him yet. If you give me your permission first, I'll lead him gently on the road I set. As long as he's alive on earth, so long as that, I won't forbid it. For while men strives, he errs. Woolen's weight in the scales is balanced out by the connection in story of Pilate and Hasnazri, with a brief appearance by Matthew Levi. Yes, that one. But he is the star of this particular show. Satan comes to Moscow to host his ball and to judge and punish those in Moscow. His first major feat, a black magic seance. The seance starts with Wolin asking, the Moscow populace has changed significantly, hasn't it? The city folks have changed greatly, externally that is, as has the city itself, incidentally. Not to mention their clothing. When the theater MC interrupts with color commentary, Wolin is offended, irritated, and removes the head of the MC. Woland eventually continues, they're people like any other people. They love money, but that has always been so. Mankind loves money. Whatever it's made of, leather, bronze, paper, leather, paper, bronze, gold. Mercy sometimes knocks at their heart, ordinary people. In general, reminiscent of the former ones, only the housing problem has corrupted them. Bulgakov's Satan is able to provide outside evaluation of Moscow's changes, perceived as a foreigner, a black magic man. He's allowed to speak without interruption in a way an ordinary comrade of Moscow wouldn't be able to. Wolin's retinue is seen throughout the city sending away corrupt officials, turning wandering-eyed men into hogs, and generally interrupting the day-to-day of the corrupt. The literary magic allows those citizens to be punished in fanciful ways by Satan himself, as opposed to a more realistic punishment by the state or by revolution. The forward and introduction proved invaluable to set the stage for why Satan and why Moscow. Uh, Finish this and then go read that. And definitely read it before you read Master Margarita. Satan's ball takes the reader away from Moscow for the most part, but not away from punishment, crime, and gruesome spectacle. 
Margarita greets the guests naked, but there is nothing sexual or exploitative. She is a witch, and witches don't need clothes. Woolen's witch Hella is nude in their home, as well as in miscellaneous Moscow offices, causing quite a stir. The guests, according to Koraviv, will be different sorts. Oh, very different, but no one, Queen Margot, should be shown any preference. Even if you don't like someone, I understand that you will not, of course, show it on your face. The first... Guest arrives via gallows, dropping down into a fireplace, stepping out of a noose. The second, stepping up from a coffin, which had crashed down as well. Every guest kisses Margarita's feet or knee or hand. Every guest is in some state of decomposition. Three hours pass, and Margarita's body begins to falter, swell, and ache, but she remains standing. Before the ball, she kneels before Woland, taking over for Hella, tending to his aching knee, foreshadowing her own pain and Woland's grace. Woland finally appears, limping for the final moment of the ball, looking just the same as he had looked in the bedroom. The same dirty patch shirt hung on his shoulders. His feet were in worn-out bedroom slippers. He addressed the head of Mikhail Alexandrovich, cut off by a train car in the first chapters of the novel and stolen before the funeral. Wolin turns the head into a jewel cup on a platter and brings forth the final guest, Baron Miguel, in charge of acquainting foreigners with places of interest in the capital and charged as a spy soon to be murdered. To save that time and anticipation, Azazello shoots the Baron, Koroviev collects the blood and Woland drinks, reviving him and changing his clothes to some sort of black shalmaze with a steel sword at his hip. Margarita also drinks, is revived, and the ball is over. Quote, don't be afraid, queen. The blood has long run down into the earth, and on that spot where it spilled grapevines are growing today. Part 3. Satan's Heart What we see throughout these tales and others is that Satan is willing to make a deal, and quick with a wager. Once a dragon. Always a dragon, yes, but also once an angel. Always an angel. He held all the power as Constantine lay on the floor, unable to light his own cigarette. But still, he agreed to send Angela's sister to heaven, forgiveness for her suicide. Sent to hell, as the rule book states, yet given grace by Lucifer himself. When Jesus passes his test in the desert, Satan simply leaves. We don't hear from him again once Job gives in. It's not Satan's voice from the whirlwind, but God's. Mephistopheles is the first to offer a wager over Faust, but only with God's permission, even then a dutiful son. Similar to searching for Satan's name, I was searching for why he was banished, why he chose to fall, or why he was thrown. For his avarice, for his pride, for pushing against God's authority, there are things I know. That Lucifer was one of God's angels. He's a rebel leader, a dissenter, a powerful character with human characteristics easy to relate to. The verbs used to describe what happened we've already covered. Cast, hurled, fell. Those don't sound like he made a choice. I can recognize I've taken this idea in through movies, art shows, whatever, with all my romantic, fanciful religiosity. The story of Satan isn't full in the Bible, but it's clearly expansive elsewhere. The moments I found so moving in Master and Margarita were between Woland and our heroine. Woland is gentle and welcoming with her, though never not exactly who he is. Roland is in the heart of Stalin's Russia with a beautiful woman and her love, cracking jokes with his entourage, relaxing in his pajamas, playing chess. It made my heart ache. I want to be inside of that moment, feeling relaxed and successful, drinking pure alcohol and celebration with your four closest friends with no concern for anything outside that room. 
In addition to the successful endeavors of his ball and having a time with those in Moscow, Wolin does end up empowering two women, giving them witches' powers, and freeing the love of Margarita, uniting them together, and granting them peace. In this story, he is kind, cruel to those who deserve it, and full of mercy for his chosen hostess, Margarita. Wolin grants Margarita her first wish to save Frida, but also her second wish, releasing her love and reuniting them. He even demands she makes a second request, since the first was a gift for her, but not a gift for her. The novel ends with the master's death and Margarita's death, poisoned by wine, the same wine the procurator of Judea drank. We see them fall asleep and wake up anew in their lover's basement home, and their journey continues. But the literary camera pans to Margarita dying in her home, desperate and alone, and Ivan Nikolovich Ponirev being told by the asylum nurse his neighbor has died, though he finds out only after the master and Margarita visit him a final time, showing him their love. Only through dying could they be united and taken to their final home. Listen to the stillness. Margarita said to the master, listen and enjoy what you were not given in life. Peace. Look, there ahead is your eternal home, which you have been given as a reward. I know that in the evenings you'll be visited by those you love, those who interest you and who will never trouble you. You will fall asleep with a smile on your lips. Sleep will strengthen you and you will no longer be able to drive me away. I will watch over your sleep. Sounds like heaven to me. And just before that, there is a final moment with Pilate. He is alone with his loyal dog, riddled by insomnia, talking to the moon. Woland explains his plight, and Margarita cries out, begging Woland to let him go. He is reluctant, but he grants her, and the master this, a third request. The master cupped his hands to his mouth and cried, so the echo leaped over the unpeopled and unforested mountains. You're free. You're free. He's waiting for you. Peace I leave you and peace I give you indeed. If I had read this novel in August of 2022, immediately after my interest was sparked, I'm not sure if it would have affected me so strongly. I started reading the Bible in 2021, and even by summer 2022, I hadn't made it to the Old Testament. I hadn't read the different versions of Pilate's repeated questions, Christ's call to his father, or learned that Mary Magdalene, a loyal woman who shared a name with his mother, was the first one to discover him risen. I hadn't yet cried in the back pews, unable to sing Agnus Dei through tears, absolutely desperate for mercy, granted peace. For me, the story ended not after the epilogue, but... As the master died in his bed, and Margarita died of longing in her home, the master's peace, with his love, Margarita and Pilate, finally free from heat from his aching head. As I turned the final pages, it was late, and I needed sleep, but I kept crying anyway.